Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we are talking to a presidential candidate, John Delaney. I know what you're thinking. Who the hell is John Delaney? And that's sad because he's a former Maryland congressman who's been running for president since July 28, 2017, two years. And he's still only 1% of the polls, but he's working on it. He's already visited 99 counties in Iowa. He's a former CEO. He's a very wealthy guy. He's worth more than about $92 million. But he's also the son of a union electrician. So he's actually lived in the real world. And he's much more of a centrist than the, a lot of the other candidates. He doesn't support Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. And we'll talk to him about that. And we also talk to him about how he owns his white privilege. John Delaney, next on It's All Political. Congressman John Delaney, welcome to It's All Political, live here in San Francisco. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were the first Democrat to announce, and this is like in I, July 28th, 2017. I thought I would clear the field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's that work? Yeah, that didn't you, work. You thought it was going to be 50 people. It's only right, 19. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and you've already traveled to 99 counties in Iowa. But, I have. But the, the, look at the polls, still only 1%. Yes. And I think many people just listening to this are going to have this question. Who the hell's John Delaney and why is he running for president? So give us give us a quick uh, your quick elevator pitch. So the reason I'm running for president is actually uh, pretty straightforward, which is I think we need new ideas and we need someone to bring this country together to really address the issues we have. Uh, for decades, we've been too busy fighting and we haven't spent enough time doing. The world's changed incredibly fast. You see that more here than anywhere probably in the country. And huge parts of our country have been left behind mm -hmm. because we haven't effectively prepared them in our country for a period of tremendous change. So I'm running for president to be the person to bring this country together, to talk about some really new ideas that need to be part of our public policy debate in this country to solve problems affecting everyday Americans and to allow us to rethink our future. So uh, let's review. You come from the business world. 1993, you founded a co-founded a company called uh, Healthcare Financial Par Partners that, that lent money to nursing homes and doctors. And three years later, you took it public and you became the youngest CEO in the history of the New York Stock Exchange at 32. Um, you know, right now, income inequality is such a big sure, it, it's it, it's huge it, issue. It's a huge issue. Uh, in particular, the pay disparity between CEOs and, and workers in California. There's actually legislation just proposed yesterday about that. What would you do to close that gap? Well, I would change our tax policy and I would update our social programs. So on the tax policy front, I would double something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is the most successful anti-poverty program we have in this country. It puts money right in the pockets of hardworking Americans. I would do that. I would make more investments in public education, particularly for early childhood. And I'd create universal pre-K and ex dramatically expand zero to three. I would uh, change some of our tax policy, particularly around capital gains. I think we don't need a differential rate between capital gains and ordinary income. We don't need an incentive for people to invest, right? Everyone with resources is investing everything they can. That's an outdated mode and it's the biggest leakage in our tax code right now. And it allows people who invest for a living to effectively pay half the tax as people who work for a living. I'd create a form of universal healthcare system uh, because I think that's really dragging a lot of Americans down and limiting their economic mobility. M many Americans are kind of shackled to their jobs because of their healthcare. So those are some of the things I would do. But, you know, in the long term, we have to fundamentally improve public education. 
We have to make sure jobs are created in lots of places in this country. Because one of the issues that we have in this country is last year, 80% of the venture capital was invested in 50 counties in this country out mm -hmm. of 3,100. And, a know, lot of it right here. A lot of it right here. Yeah. And it was really here, Los Angeles, New York, and Boston. And uh, yet you go to places like, you know, the 99 counties I've been to in Iowa, and the number one question you get from people is, will there be jobs in these communities? So we need affirmative policies to encourage investments in other parts of this country. We need a national infrastructure program. We've got to double the earned income tax credit. We've got to pay for these things by getting rid of this loophole where investors pay half of what workers do in capital gains. And you fundamentally have to improve public education to produce better outcomes if you ever want to narrow this gap across the long term. And, and you're a wealthy guy. Uh, personal wealth is over $90 million. But you you grew up uh, – your, your dad was a union electrician. Yeah, first in my family sixth, to go to college. You're the first thing in family to go. How did, how did that uh, shape you, you know, your perspectives at that point? Well, it, you know, I come from – a. You know, I come from a working class family. My dad is an electrician. I mean, he put on work boots and jeans every day, right? So I grew up around people who really work for a living every day. And so it's, it's made me appreciate the dignity of work and the importance of someone having a job where they can support their family um, and get meaning and purpose out of that. But it also reminded me that we all need a helping hand. I mean, I, I got a great education at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. My dad's union paid for half of that tuition. So IBEW scholarship. IBEW scholarship. Uh, and, you know, the way I think about it is, but for a bunch of electricians throwing some money in a hat every week to give one of their own a scholarship, I would have never had the opportunities I've had. So all these people who walk around saying, I did it on my own, it's just a bunch of garbage, right? We all need a helping hand along the way. And I think there's a role for society to, to make sure people have the kind of opportunities I've had. I mean, this is the first generation of Americans. Young people today are the first generation of Americans that will not do better than their parents, right? That's never happened in our country. But that's because it's so tough for so many people. And, you know, I think it's pretty simple. We haven't updated the basic social compact. You know, the things people need to have a shot in the world. Uh, you are the, – the, the rest of the Democratic field, maybe not the rest of it, but sort of the more high-profile members of it. Yes. Sprinting to the left on a few issues. Uh, in fact, um, you know, Marcos Melitsis, the uh, head of the Daily Coast blog, he told me that uh, a couple months back that the price of admission – is uh, is uh, supporting Medicare for all. You do not support Medicare for all. And uh, the day we're recording this, uh, Bernie Sanders has um, uh, reintroduced his Medicare for all bill into the Senate. You said that it was, um, uh, you said you oppose it. You said eliminating private insurance will decrease access and quality in healthcare and doom any chance of creating a universal healthcare system. Yet it remains the type of talking point that may sound good but is bad policy. Americans don't want a healthcare system that bans insurance, uh, bans private insurance, and solely is government based. They want options, and they don't want a system based solely on low levels of reimbursement. Uh, and then you say you you have your own plan. Yes. Explain, so I think explain what the difference. Uh, is. Absolutely. I think universal healthcare is is a right of every American. Mm -hmm. Right. I think everyone should have healthcare as a right. It's a basic human right. We can clearly afford it. And my plan that I we'll describe in a second, does that. I'll tell you why I don't like Medicare for all, because Medicare for all is a way of creating universal health care. I don't think it's the right way. And I have two issues with it. First, Medicaid and Medicare, which are the two largest programs for health care in this country, they don't pay cost. Medicaid pays 80% of cost. Medicare pays 95% of cost. Commercial insurance pays 115 to 120% of cost. So we have 50 years of evidence to suggest that if the government's the only payer, it will never pay cost. So I believe if the government was the only payer going forward, 
they would again never pay cost and that would result in more limited access and lower quality in healthcare because you'd have less people investing in the healthcare system. Would that mean fewer doctors, yeah. fewer availability of doctors in rural areas? I, went, I, I traveled around rural Iowa last week and I talked to a lot of people who run rural hospitals. And I said, what would happen if last year all of the payments you received from commercial insurance were paid at Medicare rates? And every one of them said, we would close. And so therein lies my problem with kind of this ideological, the government needs to pay all the bills, right? There's no evidence that the political system, unless we're willing to bet that the political system will entirely change and suddenly start paying healthy reimbursement rates, which is very hard to do with budget pressures. I think it's a bad fundamental kind of approach. The other issue, you know, healthcare in many ways is like Congress. If you ask your average American how they feel about the Congress of the United States, they're like, I hate it. But if you ask them about their member of Congress, you know what I'm about to say. Yes. They like it. Yes. The same Spoken thing like commercial true, insurance. Former member of Congress. Right. <laughs> same thing about commercial insurance. Most people think the healthcare system is screwy in this country. Right. And they're right. But if you ask them about their healthcare, like if I were to say to you, how's your healthcare plan at the Chronicle? You know, I, I, I don't know what you'd say, but I bet you might say, you know, it's not so bad. It's pretty good. So I don't see why the Democratic Party wants to run around saying we're going to take everyone's health care away from them. So what I would do is leave Medicare alone, create a new system from when you're born to your 65 that you get as a right, a basic government plan. You don't have to pay for it. It's free. But if you don't want it, you can opt out. You can get a small tax credit, go buy your own health care, or you can do what I think most people would do, which is to buy supplementals, just like folks do with Medicare. One of the reasons Medicare works so well is people get a basic government plan and then they have all these options for these supplemental plans, mm -hmm. most Medicare beneficiaries. And I think what would happen, you, you work at the Chronicle, you'd have your basic government plan, you'd show up at the Chronicle, the Chronicle would say, you know, we'd like our employees to have some more options. We've negotiated a group supplemental plan and you can opt into that if you want, right, to improve your basic plan. So I call that a mixed model. You have a government backbone plan. So everyone has it as a right. So everyone would be covered. Every basically. single, and it'd be free. And how would you pay for that? It'd so I would pay for that, and, and my plan's fully paid for, by taking away the corporate deductibility of healthcare, which is a $4 trillion tax loophole. Because the way it works right now, when a company gives you healthcare, you don't pay the tax on the benefit. And they get to deduct the cost. Wouldn't that make companies less likely to give me a robust benefits? Well, because no, but see, you would show up with your government plan, which would effectively cover your major medical, which is the biggest part of your healthcare, mm -hmm. right? And then you'd have this supplemental that they would negotiate for you, which you would then opt into. You would, see what I mean? Would this lower costs? Anyway? Yes, because I think, because right now, what a lot of people don't realize is we have universal healthcare in this country. It's just, it's called the emergency room. By law, if you show up in an emergency room, you have to get taken care of. That's the dumbest form of universal health care. And so there's a tremendous amount of waste in the system because of, um, you know, uh, people not having preventative care, people going to the most expensive point of care in the system. I think as part of this uh, universal plan I'm rolling out, most people would have the government plan for their major medical. That would be a more efficient plan to administer, similar to Medicare is. So I think you get some of the benefits around cost savings that people who are advocating for a single payer, but you don't give up the optionality that the American people fundamentally want. And you also make sure that there's more money invested in healthcare to continue to improve quality and access. Um, another thing that uh, many of the progressives in the race are supporting is the Green New Deal. 
and you're you, you not a fan of this. You have said the Green New Deal, this is you talking, uh, Congressman, the Green New Deal as it has been proposed is about as realistic as Trump saying that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Let's focus on what's possible, not what's impossible. And then you're proposing a carbon tax is one of many things. But isn't that sort of incremental change? We're, nope. we're being told that the planet's going to, you know, we're, we're almost at the breaking point. Isn't that kind of tinkering nope. around the edges? Why not? No, because first of all, it's, it's not incremental because right now, like we have no government policy around climate and a climate tax would be a massive shift in how people think about energy. The bill that I introduced on a bipartisan basis, and again, it was the only bipartisan climate bill or certainly carbon tax bill in the Congress, and, and I led it, put a price on carbon, it, you know, which is a tax, takes all the money and gives it right back to the American people. So it goes out one pocket, in the other, but in the meantime, it changes behavior dramatically. Columbia University modeled that it would lower greenhouse gas emissions by 90%. I believe I can get that passed in my first year as president with every single Democrat in the Congress and all the Republicans who live in coastal states because they have to do something on climate. Mm -hmm. Maybe Joni Ernst and Grassley from Iowa won't vote for a carbon tax, <laughs> but Marco Rubio and Rick Scott will because they're from Florida and they have to. Hmm. Okay. So that's the first thing I'd do. The second thing I would do is I would increase the Department of Energy research budget by fivefold. We spend $6 billion a year on clean energy. We should spend 30. We need a moonshot around storage and transmission technologies because unless we have new storage technologies, we can't get to net zero. And the third thing I would do, which is the most unique thing and I think would resonate actually quite well out here, is I would create a market for something called negative emissions technologies. Hmm. These are that? machines that exist that actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere. The problem is they're subscale and they're too expensive. But that's a problem we can solve if we create a market for it, just like we did for wind and solar. 20 years ago, if we were sitting here, people would say, oh, wind and solar is too expensive. We created a tax credit market. Prices have fallen dramatically. I want to take the $5 billion a year that we give in tax credits to fossil fuel companies, which is $50 billion over 10 years, and I want to create a market for the government to buy carbon from the lowest cost producers every year. And that will drive a wave of innovation taking these existing technologies that actually work and will create an industry that I believe will suck 20% of the carbon out of the atmosphere. Unless we do that, we will never get to net zero. Why? Because China and India open a coal power plant every single week. Mm -hmm. And Africa probably, you know, more than that. So the United States of America, I believe, has to fundamentally innovate ourselves out of this problem. And in so doing, we'll save the world. So my carbon tax puts a break on the on climate change, slows it down, and then I unleash a wave of innovation to actually create the technologies that save us. Um, and that's a realistic, and actually, it's very consistent with the American way of solving problems. And that was a, a, a being an entrepreneur yourself. Yes, that's, that's where you come. That's your perspective. Um, Twenty eighteen, another uh, year of the woman, mm. uh, and uh, in the political world, and much has been made about the number of uh, uh, female and people of color running yep. this year. And for those who may be coming to the uh, John Delaney world in the first time and, and is hearing his voice, he is a white dude, just like a couple of bald white guys talking on the uh, podcast right now. Uh, Sign so, of great yeah, it is. I, <laughs> I always I always prefer to think of it that way. Right. Um, the uh, now the other day you re released a series of policy propose proposals called the Commitment to Black America. It was very robust. More than a dozen proposals in there. Everything from ending cash, the cash bail system, and creating nonprofit banks. Uh, to increase uh, access to capital, um, to improving low-income schools. And I, I want to hear you flesh that out in a second. Sure. But first of all, 
Amy Allison was my guest here the other day, sitting in that very chair. She's going to be hosting a um, a policy uh, or a, a a candidate forum on April twenty fourth in Houston uh, that's focused on the issues of women and uh, women of color. And we were talking about how white candidates should, uh, whether it be Biden or Beto or whoever, own their privilege. How do you own your white privilege? Well, I, I'll tell you how I think about it. So, and it really hit me a couple of years ago. I was sitting in my one of my committees, the Joint Economic Committee, and a report came out. It was somewhat of an obscure report. It was titled Economic Conditions of African Americans in the United States. And it was jointly authored by the Joint Economic Committee and the Congressional Black Caucus. And there's a statistic in it that really struck me. And it said that if you're white and you were born in the bottom quartile of the economic continuum, which which I was, Mm -hmm. the chances of you making it to the top quartile, which now I am, is four times greater than that of an African-American. And there was a lot of terrible statistics in this report, how wealth and incomes and healthcare disparities exist between uh, whites and African-Americans. But this one really struck home to me because I, I, I read it and I, because I, I was reading my story and I have this kind of American dream story, right? Let's face it, right? Blue collar kid, first in the family to go to college, youngest CEO in the history of the New York Stock Exchange serving in the Congress. And people always say, well, wow, that's great. And I read that thing and I said, well, fundamentally, yeah, that may be great. I worked hard. I played by the rules. I had a lot of breaks, but it was a lot easier for me. Four times as easier. Four times easier for me. And I suddenly didn't feel quite as good about it. So that's what really made me focus on this notion of opportunity. Because unless we create the opportunities for the kind of upward mobility, then we're just continue to lock in the disparities. Which is why, really, at the end of the day, we've got to fix how we fund public education. Because it is the thing that actually prevents this from ever being broken. It is the most unjust way we fund public schools in this country. And I noticed in a lot of your the parts of your plan are not. So I don't know if that was your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that that was part of it. And but going back to your plan, your commitment to Black America, and a lot, a lot of those things, and they're not like you get four hundred bucks a month, five hundred right. bucks a month. They're they're more of incentive based. Yes. And 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 tell, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it it you know so I want to address public education funding, which is hard to do. You know, obviously it's funded locally based on property taxes. That's the main way we fund it. It's going to be hard to change a lot of that. But I think the government has a role. I think where the government really has a role is in early childhood because the real disparities exist in early childhood. You know, poor kids start kindergarten having having heard one third the words of more upper middle class or affluent kids. Meaning they start so fine, far behind, they almost never catch up. You were, you were saying the same thing our, our Governor uh, Newsom is. That is his, he preaches the same yeah. thing. Yes. And so what we really need, and, and the real opportunity for the federal government, because again, I'm running to be the president, so I'm running the federal government, is in early childhood and pre-K. Because that is not a well-formulated part of our public education system at this point. Meaning K through 12, you know, we, you know that, that, we, that exists. It's basic public education. It's run by the state's. And, uh, you know, local communities. And there's a lot of things I want to do to improve that. But really where the opportunity is, is in zero to three for poor kids and universal pre-K for everyone else. That's where there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for the federal government to actually establish real early childhood and pre-K program as a right of citizenship. And I think that would really change a lot of these issues. I mean, there's more you got to do. 
But in terms of something that I think could really move the needle and change a generation, I think that would be it. We, um, uh, I want to create incubators in historically black colleges. I want to create, you know, uh, career and technical training opportunities. There's a whole bunch of other things I want to do, but really in terms of zeroing in on one thing. For the Delaney uh, for president campaign to take off, you have to hit that debate stage. That's key. Right. Um, and the one of the thresholds is 65,000 donors from 20 states. How, how close are you there? Are you getting there? We're getting there, but uh, that's one of the criteria. The other criteria is to have uh, a certain- 1%, uh, 1% or so three polls. polls. And we've made two of, of the three so far. So we, we think we'll get it there. You think we'll get it in the polls? I do, because we, we're routinely getting- one percent, which doesn't sound like a lot, no. Uh, but when Bernie and Biden and undecided take sixty to sixty-five, the other seventeen of us are fighting on thirty-five <laughs> at this point. Yes, so it's a it's a little more than people think. Um, but you have a talk about your your your. But I, I your feel, very we're pretty special... much naked in all of those polls. So okay. I, th I think, and there'll be several more. And I think we'll make. You think we're gonna make it? Yeah. So but you have a uh, very interesting. Um, uh, should we say offer? Yeah, debate uh, challenge. The debate called. challenge. Right. You will personally donate two dollars. To nonprofits and charities for everyone from your own cash, from yes. your own pocket, um, to as part of the um, for people who donate to your campaign. So, so let me tell you where that came from, and it'll explain the motivation. So when the sixty-five thousand small dollar donors came up, my my team sit or, sat around with me and said, "Okay, we got a lot of ways to to get there." And I said, "Okay, great." And they said, you have to do what all the other candidates are doing, which is advertise like crazy on Facebook and and everything else. I heard two hundred grand of digital advertising. You can basically get 65,000 donors. Yeah. So, so what I said, yeah. So what I said, well, that's interesting. I got to spend $2 to raise a dollar <laughs> and I have to give it to digital marketing firms who send out ads saying how the sky is falling and everything is terrible. Please give me a dollar to save the world, which I've never liked those messages, quite frankly, because I think they're highly divisive. Oh, they're die. And I so I said, well, okay, we have to do that. But why don't we also throw out there that I'll give $2 to a charity for every dollar someone gives? Because I'll just feel a little better about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually the same kind of economic proposition in a way. But I would say, heck, if, if I can get half of them that way, nothing against digital marketing firms if you're out there. I'm not trying to pick on you. But I would just feel a little better giving some of that money to the Environmental Defense Fund. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so I, your campaign slogan is truth. For a change. Well, it's not really a slogan. But. <laughs> okay. That's, well, that's a tagline on your tagline. commercial. Yeah, in yeah, your yeah, commercial. Yeah. Which is uh, really, a, uh, it's sad that that's yes. the tagline given the, given the spot where we're in right now where President's, uh, President Trump has made more than 9,000 uh, false or misleading claims since taking office, according to Washington created Post. created a whole new industry tracking it. It, it, it has. <laughs> Who um, says he hasn't created jobs? Exactly. He created an industry <laughs> of fact checkers. <laughs> but, but you say at the same time, Democrats should not focus on Trump. No, it's true. How, and I didn't mention Trump when I said truth for a change. You did not. No. Um, how do Democrats get back the uh, working class voters, the folks who you're like your dad? I don't know. Maybe he was a, a you know he was a Trump a Democrat. Oh, he was a total. Okay, he was a uh, union. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean no. Anything but in North now, Jersey, but... if you were in a construction trade union. Okay, there you go. I don't think they knew that there was <laughs> there was only one party. Right, right. When right, you right. push that D, yeah. How do you get back those those Trump voters by talking to them about the things that matter to them, right? At the end of the day, like there's you know one of the issues I have with my Democratic Party, who I love so much, is we're oftentimes the thousand flowers blooming, right? We got a lot of things we care about, 
But at the end of the day, in a world where 50% of the American people can't afford $500, right? If you want to actually talk to those people, you got to talk about their job, their pay, the opportunities for their kids, what's going on in their kids' classrooms, and their healthcare. So if you're not talking about one of those five things, it's a missed opportunity. And that's how you get them back. You know, they're not asking for that much. They're just asking for a responsible government that actually gets a few things done that actually help them out. That's it. John Delaney, thank, thank you. you so much for coming really great on. to be here. It's all thank political. You. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Congressman Delaney for coming in here to our podcast studio in San Francisco to record today's podcast. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. This podcast was produced by royalty. And remember, even if nobody knows who the hell you are, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli, J-O-E-G-A-R-O-F-O-L-I, or you can email me at jgarofoli at sfchronicle.com. Support It's All Political and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.